0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Sleep On It, the podcast for sleeping your way to better health. I'm Yingying. And I'm Nana. So today we thought it would be fun to talk about how to get rid of bad habits using our brain.
1: Yes, and this term, you may have heard of it, it's called neuroplasticity. It's a pretty popular and uh, new way to brain hack, and basically what it is, is neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to rewire or change itself, either chemically or structurally, based off of internal or external environments. And so it's not only what we surround ourselves with and what we do, but also how we think that can change our brain and how it's restructured. Just keep in mind though, neuroplasticity can be to our benefit and we can rewire and rechange our brain to have positive outcomes, but it can also, there's a maladaptive neuroplasticity as well where we may not be doing the right things or exposing ourselves to the right environments causing a maladaptive or negative change in our brain.
0: I like that the both positive, the negative are true, where if you can cause bad habits, that means with your brain, you can also use the same pathways, perhaps to create the good habits, like kind of use the same mechanism.
1: Yeah, and it's as simple as restructuring, rewiring and changing the way we think about things. So often, you know, currently, a lot of the times in uh, medical practice, there are certain drugs that can change the chemical makeup of your brain that are commonly used in psychiatric medications. But these may not have positive outcomes a lot of the times. And so today we're going to talk about what we can do with only ourselves to rewire our brain so that we create positive chemicals and achieve our goals.
0: Perfect. Yes. There was something I read about neuroplasticity that I thought was really interesting that might apply to what we're going to be talking about, which is... Neural Darwinism, this idea that there are neurons that if they're not fired or used as much, they tend to die versus the ones that fire together, they will stay together and get stronger.
1: Yeah. And you know, the exciting thing about neuroplasticity and about, you know, being able to basically that saying, which is if you don't lose them, you'll lose yes. them. And um, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Exactly. And so (laughs) the idea that, you know, your brain continued to change throughout life, so it doesn't stop. And before maybe two to three decades ago, the brain was thought of as a static organ, meaning that if you had an injury, a stroke or anything like that, then your brain wouldn't adapt itself. And that more and more and more research is coming out today suggesting that that's absolutely not true and that your brain is basically this pliable, flexible organ that finds a way way to replenish, replete and build stronger and better connections. And this can occur throughout adulthood into late adulthood as well. So that's very promising and exciting.
0: So the first really bad habit that I think a lot of us can relate to is procrastination. How would you define procrastination, Nina, in your experience?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I've definitely experienced it and probably more often than I'd like to. And procrastination is basically the idea that it's hard to do something that you know you should do or that you need to do, or it feels like a will thing. It feels like, okay, I know I need to finally pick up that book because I have an exam coming up next week, or I need to, you know, Go ahead and start making dinner. Cut that out. Um, <laughs> and it's and why can't I self? Why can't I get myself to go to the library or go pick up that book? And that's what I call procrastination: leaving things till the last minute, even though you know getting that um, activity or chore done is going to make you feel a lot better, or it's something you need to do. It's just kind of delaying things more than you'd like, and it makes you feel bad inside that you've delayed it.
0: I agree. It's um for me, procrastination is just knowing you should do something and you just don't do it, and it just kind of causes this discomfort within you that you should you know you should do it. It's crazy how like that discomfort can get really repetitive and addicting almost. It's like a behavior that you know is bad for you, but you hold on to it. Like, how do we free ourselves from that is the question, using our brain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways that we can try to hack this problem is to change the way we think about it. So a lot of the times, a chore can seem really daunting, right? Especially the longer we take to do it. So it feels like, for instance, if it's getting a workout in, why do I wait till the end of the day or at a time later than I would have liked to get the workout done? Maybe we're associating workout with a certain thing. Um, maybe we might be associating it with workout equals weight loss or workout equals another chore or another thing to cross off my list. That may not be that exciting as a motivation factor to get the workout done. And so the way we can rewire our brain or make a different and positive association with working out is by associating workout with a positive feeling. For instance, for myself. After I get a workout done, I feel a lot better. I feel more energetic. I feel happier. I feel motivated. I feel like I can just go conquer my next activity. And I think most people feel that way after getting a workout done. Yeah, you're probably going to be exhausted if you know you got a good workout in, but at the same time, you're still feeling all those endorphins and positive emotions. So why not associate workout with that feeling? And so when you associate with that positive outcome and that feeling, and what the outcome is it might make you feel more motivated to do a workout the next day because, oh yeah, I felt much better and I got things done. And then repeating this over time is going to help solidify this positive association in our brain. And so maybe a week later, it might not even be a thought. It's just get up and do it. How about you? What do you think?
0: That's exactly right. Procrastination is because you are not looking forward to something. You are like delaying it because you see it as something that's bad. So your brain associates it with a negative connotation. Versus if you were to trick your brain into flipping it on its head and seeing it as a positive thing, you find it to be not as bad, like, you're like doing it as you think. And I think if I were to apply it to my own experience, like for me, writing a paper is the thing I usually procrastinate on the most. And I've had so many nights where I would wait literally till... I know this is horrible, like two days or the day before it's due to start writing it. And that's that that panic feeling. And then you get done and then you associate the positive feeling with finishing it. You're like, oh, wow, I wrote a whole paper in a night and like I I did it. You think that it's pushing yourself to get it done. That's like the positive thing. But really, it's not. You're just like suffering (laughs) unnecessarily giving yourself all that stress and like pressure on yourself. The one time I remember starting a paper on time and it was mostly thanks to the professor because she broke it up into pieces. So, she would say, like, your introduction is due on this date, and then your body is due, and then you have to meet with me to talk about your paper before you finish it on this date. So, she did a really good job breaking it up. And I remember when I did that process with that class, it felt really rewarding. And of course, I got the best grade I ever got out of paper on that one. So, just associating that, oh, I'm excited to get this done, I'm excited to do it because I associate this with like a reward of doing it properly, you know, like having a better flow and ease about it.
1: I really like that. If it's a daunting task, like a Something that's going to require a lot of time, like yeah. a paper or a bigger project. I like what you said, maybe breaking it up into smaller pieces um, so that it's more manageable. And in every day you get something done, it's like more of a positive motivational thing to do the, yeah. do the next part.
0: And I remember my trainer said something very similar with working out because he said that like, you know, a lot of people, they say that they're going to go to the gym because they want to have the perfect body, quote unquote, which is not exactly the best goal because what is that? You know, there's always going to be someone who has a quote unquote fitter body than you. So it almost feels like that goal will never be achievable. So because they have such a daunting goal that seems like a juggernaut, people end up not going to the gym. His customers, he found that they stopped coming to the gym when they had that mentality. But the people who come to the gym with a very, almost like more positive or uh, step-by-step goal like today i just want to feel good today i just want to feel like i uh give myself a little sweat you know my goal isn't necessary to have the perfect body my goal is just to feel better so when they have those small goals in mind they come more and more often and then they build on those goals and then in the end they become their fittest self and so he says that's the best mindset to approach it So maybe the best way to think about procrastination if you want to nip it in the butt right now and just to start is doing what they call the five second rule, which is really popular online, which means that if you have an impulse to act right now, do it within five seconds of that initial thought or else they say that your brain will then kill it. So for me, that would be like if I wake up in the morning and normally I procrastinate, I'll stay in bed for a couple of minutes when I really should just get up because I know I'm going to be late for the rest of the day. So when you have the initial feeling of getting up, just do it within five seconds. Once you're out of bed and you, you know brush your teeth and wash your face and make your bed, you're already awake. Yeah, because
1: the more I notice that too, the longer I stay in bed, I'm likely to push snooze. So as soon as that first alarm goes off, just jolt out. <laughs>
0: So, you know, let's say you're getting better at procrastination and then you're in it, you're doing it, you're writing that paper, you're on that laptop, but then you have brain fog. Like you just can't seem to concentrate. You can't seem to get any of the thoughts organized. What do you do? Is that what you experienced too when you experienced brain fog, Nana?
1: Yeah, I imagine brain fog as kind of a lack of mental clarity. Can't get your thoughts out or it's hard to process information. And, you know, there'll be times when, you know, I I was in medical school and I picked up a book that I needed to read to study for an exam. And I noticed that it's been half an hour and I'm only on page two. And why is that? Why is it that I'm not processing that information? Why is it that there seems to be what's called like a block or commonly called brain fog? you know i sometimes think of well why is this occurring and it makes me think about a concept which is embedded in all human beings so every human has a primitive response and an example i'll give is our ancestors so our ancestors had exposure to different threats whether it was a earthquake or some sort of tiger and when they were exposed to this threat they automatically had a response they would run into a cave or run the other direction away from the tiger. That is the body's automatic way of ensuring survival and producing an activity that you don't even have to think about. And this is called the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is basically the individual or body's fight or flight response. It's characterized by high blood pressure, high heart rate, and high levels of cortisol secretion, which is your stress hormone. That pretty much allows you to be alerted or response to a dangerous situation. But the problem is today in our environment, we may not have tigers as a threat but it seems like we've made a lot of environmental factors threats or trigger this sympathetic nervous system you know whether it's work or traffic or raising children or taking care of elder ones i mean these can be stressful situations and so it kicks our body into the sympathetic nervous system which basically you, you don't even think about but you're in a high stress state the problem with being in this state is that it's hard to process and analyze information and your own thoughts. I think that's the reason why we experience this constant state of brain fog or lack of mental clarity is because we are in a high stress state all the time. A solution to that could be to take a step back And change the way we perceive our environment. Instead of looking at them as threats, maybe look at them as exercises, activities, or a part of our daily life. And when we do that, our body then enters into the alternative state, which is called the parasympathetic state or the rest and digest state this is the state in which we're able to really have creative thoughts, analyze our thoughts and come up with solutions.
0: I love that because it kind of reminds me of, uh, of when people fight and then you know they're in a high strong state like probably that's when your fight flight or freeze response kicks in instead of concentrating on the problem and solving it you just start saying really ridiculous things that you can't take back and then you're starting to talk about things that don't even like Really late, and then you forget where you're even going. Versus maybe the two people should just take a moment to calm down, right, and like be in a better state of mind, and then come back to the table and be able to actually talk about things more rationally. I think if we were to talk about this in terms of work, like maybe you are in a very stressful work, maybe you always have deadlines, and you can't really afford to have those brain fog moments. So going back to like kind of neuroplasticity and like the whole fire together, you are wired together. Maybe having like a ritual right before you do something to kick off that game pattern. Do you think that would help with getting yourself focused, reading that moment of concentration? Because when you're focused, that's when your neurons are building pathways, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. And you're right. So I think emulating other individuals who seem to do really well in high stressful situations, like firefighters or physicians, when it's a life or death matter, literally. And why do they seem to do so well? And it seems like, you know, they're always remaining calm. I mean, they're able to work with other team members. They're able to uh, delegate tasks. Are able to organize their thoughts. And it could just be because this is a part of their daily routine. This is what they're doing every single day. So they associate this as, yeah, that's just a day in the life or a day in the job. And so rather than this insurmountable task or this, I've never done this before, and you you kind of panic. I mean, even if you haven't done it before, I think there is a lot of value in just stepping back or stepping aside from the situation for uh even if it's just for 10 seconds, it can really make a big difference. And once you've been in that situation, it becomes a lot easier to do it the second time around or the third time around it. And you're solidifying pathways, positive pathways in your brain, you know, after you've done it the 10 time, it just makes it feel like a breeze. And so not to belittle that, but just sort of try to emulate from how well you can really respond in stressful situations and just being mindful of it, I think can go a long way.
0: Yeah, I think that's why musicians or performers, they do the busking, because like, you know, the performing outside, because I'm sure when you're performing in front of a big audience, it's so nerve wracking, and you could easily forget your lines, you could easily forget how to play your instrument or move. So by busking, repeating their performance over and over again in front of an audience with nothing to lose, then when they actually perform, perhaps for like a, you know, a paying audience or for a job, they're able to do it instantly without feeling as nervous or tripping over themselves.
1: Yeah. You know, the way I see it is we've all seen sort of a rat go through this really intricate labyrinth or Mm -hmm. maze, right? And there's a lot of different ways to get to the end point. And the first time you put a mouse into that maze, it might take a really long time exploring different pathways. But over time, after they've done the maze one or two or three times, they've found the quickest, shortest way to get to the end. That can happen similarly in a brain where once we keep exposing ourselves to a certain activity, then over time, we'll figure out the best way to do it. I will also play devil's advocate to that process. And at the same time, I do think there is value in trying things new ways. But if you know, for instance, and exploring the different routes and paths to places, uh, just to get sort of a new scenery. But I think that in certain situations that can be really helpful where we want to really solidify a certain activity and find the fastest way there.
0: That makes a lot of sense. For example, like if you're used to doing math problems really quickly, you know, and like maybe the first time you do it, it's really slow because you're still processing those neural pathways. But then the more you do them, the faster you get. So it's almost when you get presented with a new math problem, like when we used to take calculus and when you're presented with the AP tests and they give you this new problem, you have to, they ask you like A, B, C, D, and they really make you have to think of the problem in a different way. If you were able to practice all those different other math problems before, when you approach this new math problem, you're able to see new solutions to doing it faster than if you had not set up the foundation in your brain. That reminds me of something that you said that I thought was really good, which is the idea of like how sleep is really important and imprinting things that you've learned for the next day. Can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I feel like we've all pulled all-nighters before exams at least once or twice in our academic careers. You know, I don't know. I've never felt optimal when I've done that. I've always felt like, you know, i come to the exam room and just so sleepy and tired and I can't seem to remember anything that I studied the night before. I quickly learned that that wasn't helpful and now I know why. And the reason is because When you sleep, you're allowing your brains to solidify those learning connections that you make. So when you learn something, it's only short-term, right? But when you sleep, you help solidify that memory and put it into your long-term memory bank. So when you sleep, your brain has to go through certain motions where these pathways are um, reoccurring and solidifying. And this is allowing you to actually memorize the material that you reviewed earlier. And so without that component, of sleep, you're going to feel like you can't recall anything from the prior day. And so I can't stress that enough, but sleep is definitely good for new learning. So it not only does it solidify existing information, but it allows you to learn things faster and better and promotes long-term memory too. So definitely get that seven to nine hours or seven to eight hours nightly if possible before exams or anything important.
0: So that really is a great way to segue into our next bad habit, which is hoarding or lack of cleanliness in your space. Because we both agreed that your space also impacts how your cluttered your mind might feel.
1: I know that when I'm not in a clean space or when I've not put away things, I feel kind of anxious and panicky and feels like that clutter on the outside causes clutter on the inside. I think there's a direct relationship between the two and it might have something to do with the inability to make a concise decision or being indecisive. And maybe that goes back to having too many choices in your environment. Why do you think it is that we've get into this hoarding nature. I mean, one of the things I think about is we live in a capitalistic society where we're encouraged to believe that more is better. And so we end up buying five types of everything. And so we end up hoarding, we end up being material people. Although this is subtly encouraged, it's actually harmful to our thought process and how we process information, our ability to make decisions, because we want to make life as simple as possible. And the way that we do that is by we're really reflecting that simplicity into everything into um, how many things we have into how we approach food and by making life simple it's going to get rid of all that clutter in our minds if you're faced with only a couple of choices or one choice it may save you a lot of time the truth is i think we all you know end up gravitating only towards a few things in our closet anyway because those are our favorites And so I, for me anyway, I have so many clothes and I end up wearing sort of a lot of the same similar types or similar ones, even though I have all these options. And I think to myself all the time, why do I even have this? It's just taking up space. It confuses me in the morning and it causes me more stress than anything.
0: Yeah, nothing's worse than your, you know, you get up in the morning, you have to go to work and you're already 10 minutes late and then you can't decide what to wear. And no matter what you things you put on, you just don't feel like it's good enough. And then that impacts your mood for the rest of the day. At least for me, I find that to be the case. And I love when Maria Kondo became like really trendy and I love how her work got recognized. She was talking about how it only keep things that spark joy. And for me, the way that I approach that is that if I haven't used something in over six months, I'm probably just going to donate it or recycle it because it's just taking up the space. And then similar to what you're saying, likewise, if you know that there's a few things that do spark joy for you, whether it's your favorite pair of jeans or your favorite set of pens that you use when you're working, then place those things within eyesight or within common reach so that you can easily access it. And it kind of makes it easier for your brain to process what to do next. Like speaking of hoarding, right, and also having indecisiveness being linked together, I think all those things can accumulate to our next bad habit, which is mindless eating.
1: Mindless eating could be as a result of creating emotional associations with food. And we may not even be aware of these associations because they could have been solidified or built a really long time ago. For instance, I know when I was a young kid and I was sad or I fell off of my bike, then maybe my parents might have offered me an ice cream, and that would have made me feel instantly better. When you're a kid, you don't really associate ice cream with weight gain or diabetes or anything negative. You just see it as sort of a positive treat. And so in our minds, over time, we've developed this association of eating with certain emotional outcomes. So ice cream is good. On another point, when you have a bad day, your parents might have offered you ice cream as well. And so you have an association with ice cream always making you feel good.
0: No, I totally relate to that because I don't know, as a child of Asian immigrants yourself, I don't know if you associate with this too, but in our household, we only ate Asian food. And it was only during special occasions or as a treat. Like if someone was over, we would have American food like chicken nuggets. And I remember the dinosaur chicken nuggets was like the biggest treat you could get. I remember when we would have those, I would like eat them up and I would just like feel like oh this is so precious you know because I associate those dinosaur chicken nuggets as like a treat right a happy memory so I associate yeah. like those sort of American snacks as something that you can't normally have. It's a reward. So then fast forward, you know, when I got older, I definitely think those neural pathways stayed with me where if I felt like I needed a reward or I need something to soothe me, I would like gravitate towards those American processed foods, which at the time you're right, when you're younger, you don't think a 17, you know, sorry, 17, a seven-year-old is going to, you know, have a big problem eating a couple of chicken nuggets. But when you're my age and you're, if you eat those too often, often it's does. it doesn't really serve you as well as having something healthy and we know that right like you were telling me before how when you first start snacking you like it for the first couple bites but then you start feeling awful versus when you start maybe having some healthy vegetables or healthier natural snack when you first start off you're not sure but then at the end of the day you feel much better
1: Exactly. And I think the way that we can, a solution to this um, problem is to create different associations with food. And so for me, I know that if eating cake or ice cream, even though it feels good at that very instant, after I've eaten it, I feel icky, lethargic, or just gross, and I regret eating it. But why is it that I'm quick to want to go for ice cream or cake or other unhealthy choices? Whereas it takes a little bit longer or more of an effort to want to make healthy choices, like eating vegetables or something else healthy. But at the same token, I notice when I do have a salad or when I eat, you know, fresh vegetables, I almost always feel better. I feel like more energy and more full. And it It helps me have better choices for my next food option. And so what we can do now is it's never too late to change the association of food with certain outcomes. For instance, you know, we might associate that feeling of ickiness with heavy foods and say next time, well, I don't want to feel like that. So I'm not going to go for that on heavy fries or pizza. But because those fresh veggies made me feel so good, I am going to go for that next time.
0: It's like your body knows what it needs. You know, it knows that when you eat like your your routine food, your routine meals, that's, that's why I think we all love watching people's what I eat in a day, like those routines, because when you get into a habit of knowing what you're going to make for breakfast, lunch and dinner, you do that on a daily basis, your, your body will then associate those foods with what it needs. And then if you deviate too much from that, like if you over snack on cookies, you will feel awful afterwards, your body will tell you and then you can associate that feeling the next time. But I actually found that it's also about craving. And we talked about how like intermittent fasting can actually help you curb those cravings.
1: Yeah, intermittent fasting has become really popular right now. And I say, I think for good reason, a lot of research has shown that you know, time restricted eating or intermittent fasting where you eat from um, certain periods of the day where it's, you know, 12 to six or 12 to eight, or some people, you know, do a whole 24 hour fast for a day and then go back to a normal diet the next day. This has been shown in research, particularly from the neurological point of view, to increase the flexibility and pliability of your brain and synapses that are occurring between neurons. And it's also preventing your brain from essentially shrinking over time, which shrinking of the brain is related to dementia and early onset aging and memory issues. So this intermittent fasting can not only be helpful from a long-term neurological point of view and even short-term for just improving brain fog and mental clarity. But also, like you said, with the routines and setting boundaries. So if you know you're only going to eat between one o'clock to eight o'clock, then you don't really have a lot of choices to make there before one. You're just like, okay, no, I know I'm just not eating. And then the same thing occurs after eight. And I think having that window makes, at least for, I've been doing the um, one o'clock to eight o'clock. And I find that it just seems easier and it doesn't seem like an effort after you've done it for a few days and solidifying that kind of routine can be really helpful and you make food choices that are more healthy and I know that I eat higher protein rich and higher fat rich foods because it's gonna have to carry me over till the next day so I do end up making better choices versus like you know high energy high sugar choices which would cause quick crashing Definitely, you know, all these, although these are good, it may not work for everyone out there. So be mindful if you're diabetic or have other health issues and definitely consult your physician or you engage in specific diets, definitely.
0: Perhaps we can even turn on our heads where it's where instead of mindless eating, focus on intuitive eating and just really savoring what you're having and enjoying it. I think that's also just a different mindset. Like we always talk about how maybe you shouldn't eat your meals while you're watching something because then you're thinking about what you're watching rather than what you're eating and things like this. So adopting those sort of practices and that way you can also tell when your body is starting to feel full because your body does send you that signal that it's already satiated. You just... Either ignore it or you push past it. Also, going back to what you're saying about reassociating different foods with like different emotions. After the documentary *Super Size Me* came out, it kind of really changed people's perception of fast food. And for me, the biggest imagery was seeing the McDonald's fries when they were putting out different. I think they were putting out different fries, and then they showed like over time how they degraded. And you know, the freshly made fries you could tell seeing after like a week or so it would have mold and like started attracting the normal sort of decay. But the McDonald's fries still looked fresh, like it just came out of the oven. And I think they even fast forwarded even longer and the McDonald's fries still looked like the same. So just to think of what are you doing to your body by eating that when it doesn't break down naturally like that. So that really made me go associate it in a different way.
1: Yeah. You know, that that's so interesting because I've had a similar experience where, you know, I really like a lot of prepared foods, especially when I was in residency, like from Costco or different grocery stores where all you had to do is like pop it in the oven. And it was useful because it was, you know, something quick and nutritious, but at least I thought it was nutritious. And then I would look through the ingredients and realize that, there's like a lot more ingredients than I would think to make chicken enchiladas, for instance, like things that I can't pronounce because they are some chemical compound. And so that really turned me away because it made me realize that there are not a lot of wholesome or natural products that are going into foods. For instance, I wouldn't make pasta with 200 ingredients, right? And so being aware of what our food is, what's, what it is made up of, and considering sort of the natural components of it is really important and helps make better decisions too.
0: Yeah, and that reminds me of this TED Talk I watched on neuroplasticity, where they were saying how when like Betty Crocker came out with like her cake mix or something like that they used to actually include eggs and water or whatever butter like the natural ingredients with the package but they found that people found less enjoyment from it because it didn't give them that sense of oh ownership that I made these cookies or made this cake so then when they took out the eggs and the water and you had to add in your own I think it made people feel better that they actually made something of their own maybe that's how your brain is wired like it does want to learn and experience new things like that's why we love to travel that's why we like to learn new languages or read books and because when we're those pathways in our brain I mean I don't know if you agree maybe it releases some sort of like positive thoughts or like positive inner or hormones in your brain that allows you then to pick things up other things up better in the future like there was that uh, study of the rats where they fed them fruit roll-up and they had one group of rats that was called the worker rats. So they actually had to dig up for their fruit, little, roll up little bundles and, like, actually hunt for their food. And then they had the second group, which was called the trust fund rats, where they were just given the food, like, they, without having to do anything. And then over time, they took these two rats and they would study their brains and they were drastically different. Like, the the trust fund rats apparently had lower positive neurotransmitters like dopamine and like more stress hormones versus the worker rats and then likewise when they were trying to teach those rats how to drive apparently you can teach rats how to drive which is a really cool thing having them navigate towards the fruit roll-up or teaching them how to swim the worker rats were able to pick up those things so much faster than the trust fund rats in fact the trust fund rats weren't even able to learn how to drive at all
1: That is a great example because I feel like when you're doing things yourself, you're learning things along the way. You're learning tasks, you're learning motor memory, you're learning different aspects that will then be applicable to not only that one kind of activity or task, but to other tasks in the future too. So I think learning is just so beneficial. And so, you know, it's kind of like they say that you won't know until you do it for yourself.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's the perfect segue into our last topic, which is negative self-talk.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we can all sort of relate to having talked down to ourselves or saying something negative. And for instance, you know, it can be as simple as looking in the mirror and saying, man, my hair looks awful today or I look a little chubby. And it could occur before a presentation and you could say, oh man, I'm really bad at public speaking. I don't know if I can do this. And Um, It's just a lot of negative self-talk. And when we do that, when we sort of say these things in our head and towards our own self, it actually changes our brain chemistry. We start Mm -hmm. secreting stress hormones and these stress hormones may cause us to have a negative outcome or you end up actually doing pretty bad on that public speaking talk because you talked yourself down the whole time before it. And so you build up your nerves and your anxiety and you get into this high sympathetic straight where you're panicking. Why does this occur? And one of the reasons I think is because we're in a society where we feel like anything is possible, right? And so when we're young, especially our generation Yingying, when we grew up um, around sort of the dot-com boom where anything was possible. And so it was a time when parents and and teachers and the media would say you can be president if you want to although i don't know <laughs> if anyone really want to but likewise you can be the next mark zuckerberg or steve jobs and although this positive encouragement is good and it's necessary for having a conducive environment to be in it's also not realistic right so what happens when you don't become the next mark zuckerberg or the next steve jobs the truth is most of the world isn't. And so when we don't meet that expectation that was set up around us, then we become disappointed in ourselves. And we end up talking negative or feeling down about ourselves. The solution to this could be that, you know, instead of having this heightened expectation or view of what we should or can become, maybe we just need practical and realistic help around us to help us achieve our own goals or evaluate our own skill set, or our own passions or what we want to achieve in the world. I mean, success does not equal being the next tech entrepreneur in the world or Michael Jordan. Success can come in all sorts of different ways, shapes and form. And so it's really managing these expectations, which I think is so important because this gap in expectation can cause negative self-esteem.
0: Yeah, and that reminds me of a book that I highly recommend by Lori Gottlieb, I hope I'm saying her name right, but she wrote the book Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And she's a writer, Uh, she writes for The Atlantic, And she's also a therapist. And the way that she kind of connects the two professions, she sees them as very similar. In the sense, when she's an editor, you know, she's editing the story and she's trying to understand, like, how do you frame the story? Similarly, when she hears her patients and how they frame their stories, she's almost feels like she's an editor in their stories, like drawing attention to certain parts and whether that's true or not. If you can be the editor in your own story, I think that's the way to kind of do a brain exercise when you have negative self-talk. So it's like reframing what the story is and placing yourself in the protagonist seat, right? Like the hero's seat rather than like the victim's seat.
1: Yeah, and I think you brought up a really important point, which is a victim. So a lot of the times in life when you know we um, fail a test or we don't get a job or a loved one passes away we feel like we're the victim right we feel like why did this happen to me all negative things always happen to me and making yourself feel like the victim does one very important thing which is it makes you feel like you've lost control of your life and you've lost control of your happiness And once you're in that state, it's really hard to be resilient or be positive, right? And so the solution to this is to understand that suffering is a part of all human life. I mean, we've all experienced an adverse event in different ways. No human is completely immune to this, especially right now in the pandemic. We've all been affected in different ways, whether it's directly via a loved one or work or some other form. And so when we understand and accept that suffering is a part of life, life, then we're able to step out of that victim role and able to see it as a collective kind of experience with our friends, colleagues, and family members, and in fact, turn to them for support and also Understand how other people have gotten through these experiences, and sharing these experiences can be really helpful to pick yourself out from a negative state into a more positive and encouraging one.
0: And I think on a spiritual level, I really associate with that because I think many of us nowadays there's this illusion that we're alone. I, I don't know whether it's through you know the capitalistic viewpoint or just from the fact that you know we live in a bubble. We're always comparing ourselves to other people, you know, with social media. But the idea that you're alone, the way that I see it is that it's all kind of an illusion and I I think it is very noble when some people want to fight the fight by themselves maybe they don't want to trouble other people so they you know they talk negatively to themselves because they see themselves as a burden my thought is that spiritually I think we're all really connected if you think about it like even the actions that you do today will impact the generations in the future and also all the people who have lived before us you know our ancestors they've like what they've done have also influenced us today so that just shows like the cosmic thread that connects all of us and even if we're not alive to see what will happen in the future with like our kids or our grandkids or what the world would be like, we can feel content in knowing that what we're doing now does make an impact. So in the sense that we are there with them. So I think that's why spirituality is such an important component to combating negative self-talk or negative hate and just promoting self-love and self-compassion. So those are the practices that I hope that we can all adopt more because it will be very beneficial to all of our health in the long run.
1: I really like that. And I think That also reminds me of another potential solution to combating negative self-talk, which is based off the premise that humans are essentially social beings, right? We are hardwired to want to care, love, and be cared and loved by other people. And a great example of that is we're one of the few living species that takes care of their children for such a long time. When this happens, certain hormones are developed in our brain. Those hormones like dopamine or oxytocin, which are um, called the love hormones or the happy hormones. And they're called that because when they're developed in your brain by these social interactions, you feel happy and peace and at peace and elated. This basically points to the fact that humans, I think, are just altruistic beings and they crave wanting to be around people, helping people either directly or indirectly and take a lot of happiness and joy from that fact. Mm-hmm. And so one potential solution if you find yourself in a negative place or in a negative state is to maybe center yourself around activities where you're helping other people or around other people, like whether it's a mentoring activity or volunteering somewhere or taking up a job where you feel like you're doing that more. I think those can go a really long way and although they seem selfless acts, which they are in some ways, they're actually quite selfish in many ways, because by engaging in these activities, not only are you benefiting other people, but you're also benefiting yourself. You're allowing yourself to enter into a happy, more productive state. And so you're helping yourself.
0: Yeah, which is why I always am so amazed by people who might have had, like, disabilities, either from a young age, or maybe they got into an accident, or they're diagnosed with, you know, Parkinson's or some degenerative disease later on in their life. When they tell their story, you can really tell that the way that they build their strength, it also translates over to how they're able to do things that people don't expect them to be able to do, you know, whether that is someone who maybe blind, but be able to use echolocation to know what they are because they keep pushing themselves to make a contribution back. So instead of just thinking that they will live only to the expectation that society sets them at and are proving that they can do it, it, just goes to prove that the brain is a really an amazing thing.
1: Yeah. And I really like how you brought up disabled people, people who have different deficits, whether it's blindness or learning disabilities. We talked earlier about very high expectations of who you can become, whether it's basketball players or tech entrepreneurs. At the same token, I think there's a stigma around disabled people in which they're told the opposite. They're told that you can never become, you know, an athlete or you can never become a college professor or an entrepreneur. And why not? Why do these stigmas exist? Because You know, I was really taken back by a story of a woman who talked about how she had a learning disability and couldn't read. And in the 1970s, when she was growing up, everyone told her, well, this is it for you. You should take up some technical or vocational job because you can't read and you won't ever be able to. And she researched other people who have this condition, and they essentially came up with brain exercises that allowed her to learn how to read in a different way, not the conventional way that was taught in schools. Teaching herself again, she was able to read like a normal person and go through college. And so I think that was a great story of how not only is it important to maybe not have extreme positive stigmas and uh, expectations, but also not really taking into account or heeding the negative expectations associated with certain types of people, too. Another potential mechanism which could help get rid of negative self-talk is something called selectional attention. What that essentially means is that we focus and pick and choose things that we do that always produce a positive outcome rather than a negative one. For instance, if we want to cope with the loss of a loved one, instead of looking at pictures that may make us sad and want to cry and really increase that pain, we may rather figure out another way to feel connected to our loved one without feeling sad. And that may Be something like okay well that loved one may have loved fishing and so you may go fishing and revive your memory that way and so the concept behind it is essentially focusing on things that we can control in our environment rather than focusing on things that we can't control so it also just teaches us to be grateful for what we have around us and practicing gratefulness goes a long way in how you view the world and how you view yourself too. These simple things, if we are able to just practice, can go a really long way. You can really change your brain and how it wires.
0: That's our episode on the six habits that we can use neuroplasticity to get rid of, and which are procrastination, brain fog, hoarding, indecisiveness, mindless eating, and negative self talk.
1: Yes, I hope that these tips and techniques help. And if you want to hear about any other sort of bad habits, that we can help you hack your brain to get rid of please do let us know and subscribe on our channel sleep on it podcast bye See you next time